0: Good morning, and now I'm off on mute. Happy Father's Day to all of the dads in the building. My name is Ben, if I've ever met you before, I'm the community pastor here, and it's my privilege to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, right through to the end of the chapter. Such a long passage this morning that we don't actually have a Bible reading before it, but I'll be running through those verses in just a moment with you. So if you've got your Bible, please open up to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, and we'll spend some time there in just a moment together. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and of true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And Lewis was right. We see this play out in our passage today. Paul shares the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and no one kind of shrugs their shoulders and walks away. There are two kinds of responses in the passage, great acceptance and joy or great hostility and rejection. The gospel is not moderately important news. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. And if you're a Christian, you might think, yes, of course, you know, I'm... I believe this, I've accepted that. What else do we have that we can talk about? But I want to caution us to be careful about those kind of thoughts because we never outgrow the gospel. Paul said to the Christians in Rome in Romans 1.15, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. These were Christians that had accepted the gospel and Paul was eager to preach it to them again. We need to hear it again again and again, and again. Sin has so distorted our beliefs about God that we need multiple exposures to the gospel to sort of recalibrate and renew us and give us right thinking about who God is. How well do you really know the gospel? How well do you really know it? Here's one question we can ask kids. I want you to think about this as well because we'll answer this later on as we look at the passage. I have a mentor, and he said that he used to be a principal at a Bible college. And at one stage, he had this decision to make. He was hiring an applicant, but the applicant was actually a murderer. They'd murdered someone earlier in life, but they'd become a Christian. Is he allowed to hire that person at the Bible college? That's a gospel question primarily. And so we're going to Answer that as we look through Acts chapter 13 today, it's going to give us some more thinking about the gospel. It's important to understand the gospel, we need to receive it, and it helps us to answer big questions like that. But that's not the only thing we'll be learning today. Our passage holds one of the few sermons in Acts, and it shows us how Paul spoke to Jews. Jews, they were the Israelites that God chose in the Old Testament. They knew their Old Testament, the Bible, really well, back to front. And so you're going to have to forgive me here, but we're going to get pretty detailed at points today because Paul just assumes they have all this knowledge about the Old Testament scriptures. And so we're going to be diving into some of the references that he makes and explain what he's doing. But this gives us a good picture of how he preached the gospel to Jewish people. And for us, it gives us a really good opportunity to learn how to read the Old Testament as Christians. Paul read the Old Testament correctly. He saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he's going to help us to see how to read the Old Testament today. And so kids and parents, for example, this, comes, this becomes important when it comes to things like children's Bibles or children's books about Jesus. A lot of those books and those children's Bibles have stories about the Old Testament in them. But has the author written them correctly, the person who's written that book? Have they interpreted the Old Testament correctly when they're bringing that to you? Well, understanding how to read the Old Testament and learning from Paul here will just help you discern those kinds of questions. So Acts 13 helps us to understand how to read the Old Testament, and it's going to help us understand the gospel. Acts 13 matters. So let's dive into it. First, I'm going to run through the whole story and explain what Paul is doing along the way. And then after that, I've run through it, we'll look at the lessons that we gain from this passage. How to read the Old Testament and what the gospel says. All right, let's jump into the story. Acts 13, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Last week, Adam spoke to us, and it was from the beginning of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the church in Antioch, sent out by the Holy Spirit on their mission to preach the the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And this mission took them to the island of Cyprus and they preached the gospel to this Roman official there and he gave his life to Jesus, which was incredible. Now we pick it up at that point. Paul, Barnabas and their companion John Mark sail from Cyprus back to the mainland. We'll put an image up on the screen of a map. John Mark is that green line there and he decides to head back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas, the red line, they stay at Italia, that sort of area, and walk all the way up to Antioch, which is about a 200-kilometer journey. So they walk up to Antioch. Now, this is a different Antioch to the Antioch at the beginning of the chapter. Kind of confusing, like hundred, heaps of Herods, heaps of Marys. Well, there were heaps of Antiochs in the ancient world as well, because the Greek, one of the Greek generals who conquered cities, he would name them in honor of his father Antiochus. He would name many of these cities Antioch. So that's why in our passage, I think verse 14, it says it's, they went to Pisidian Antioch. This region is called Pisidia, so they're at the Pisidian Antioch, not the one at the beginning of the chapter. All right. Now, Pisidian Antioch was this Roman colony. It was an important city, and they had this huge temple uh, for emperor worship. And so that's what it would have kind of looked like if we could reconstruct it. That's the uh, archaeological dig that we've done on that area. And so this is quite an impressive pagan city. And so Paul and Barnabas, they walk into the city, and on the Sabbath day, they hear there are Jews there. There's a synagogue there, which is a little bit like a church. And they went to this synagogue service, and they sat down, and they participated in the service. And as they sat down, they heard the readings from the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And one of the leaders there must have noticed that these two Jewish brothers had walked in and said, sent them a message and said, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for us, stand up and speak. And this is Paul's golden opportunity to preach the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And this is what he does. We see his sermon in verses 16 to verse 41. And what he does, he begins by recounting the history of Israel. Now, they knew the history, but what he's doing is just building rapport with his audience. He's building a bridge rather than throwing rocks at them to start with. And so he's building a bridge to say, hey, I'm a Jew. This is our history. It began around Egypt where God brought us up out of Egypt. And we spent time in the wilderness and so on and so forth. And then he finishes up looking at David. And he does that on purpose because he wants to really focus on David in his sermon. The reason why that is, is because David was the recipient of some incredible promises in the Bible. So if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that he would be given a son whose throne would never end. That was one of the promises. But after David, the kingdom of Israel really just got worse. It split into two. It went down and down and downhill until it was eventually destroyed. So the Jewish people, the Israelites, were still waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. They were still waiting for a son of David who would come, whose throne would endure forever, whose kingdom would never end. And that is why Paul, as a Jew, is stopping on David and emphasizing David. He wants them to see that Jesus is the son of David, the one promised, the one who fulfilled those promises. And so he says in verse 23, he says, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the savior, as he promised. So he leaves a bookmark there in David for a moment. And then he comes fast forward to the present day. And he talks about John the Baptist. Many of them would have known John the Baptist, his ministry was a great ministry in Israel. And and he said, "Look, look, John the Baptist believed Jesus was great. John the Baptist himself, he says in verse 25, said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for. But the one coming after me, that's Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task of a slave. So Paul points out that John the Baptist believed Jesus was this great one. And then he turns his eyes to uh, to Jerusalem and to their response to Jesus. He talks about how they hear the scriptures read out every Sabbath and they missed it. They missed it. They didn't read their Old Testament correctly. And in fact, when they put Jesus to death, they condemned him unjustly. And what he's showing there is that the the Jerusalem leaders, these religious leaders, were acting out of step with God's law. They weren't God's representatives doing the right thing. They were acting contrary to God's will, putting him to death unjustly. They were wrong about Jesus. And in fact, Jesus was buried, but God raised him from the grave. And God raising Jesus from the grave is like him vindicating his son, saying, this is my son. This is the king that I have sent. This is the one whose throne will never end. And so in verses 33 to 37, Paul starts going into all these Old Testament quotations to do with David. Let me just run you through them. The first one, well, this one's not actually to do with David. It's more about just this king that God's raising up. He says in verse 33, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now, Psalm 2 is a coronation Psalm for Israel's kings. But in this Psalm, God is talking about overcoming the opposition of the nations. And he says, I will set up my king. And anyone who submits to him will enter into his reign of peace, will escape his judgment. And so Paul is saying, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that Psalm. This is God's king. This is the one who God has raised up and raised from the grave. And then he says in verse 34, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, a forever king. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And there is quoting from Isaiah 55. God in that chapter is talking to Israel. He's saying, come to me. I'm more willing to forgive than you would ever think. Turn away from your wickedness, come to me, and you will receive the holy and sure blessings promised to David. You will get a place in this everlasting kingdom. And Paul's claim is that Jesus is the one who secures those promises. Jesus is the one who is the son of David. And then lastly, he says in verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay. That was something that David said in Psalm 16, But Paul makes the point that David couldn't have fulfilled that. That couldn't have ultimately been about David because David died and his body did decay. But Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. So this verse really ultimately is about Jesus. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. He is the one we have been waiting for. And so now Paul gives his conclusion. What does this mean? He says, verse 38... Therefore my friends I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you will not able to obtain under the law of Moses it's this incredible good news and so he finishes the sermon with a warning he quotes from Habakkuk and he says to his listeners and the Jewish people there Take care that you don't be like one of these scoffers who disbelieves. This is the one who God has sent. Believe. And so, as the synagogue service finishes, the people were amazed. They were coming up to, to Paul and Barnabas and asking them if they could share these things again next week at the next synagogue service. And even some of the Jews and the Gentiles who were there actually began to follow Paul and Barnabas. They believed, they were beginning to follow the Jesus way. So, it's an incredible response over the next week, we don't know what happens, but the news must have been spreading because the next Sabbath, they come together for the synagogue service and the whole city is gathered to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say about this Jesus. And as they gather there, the Jews who hadn't said yes to Jesus, the, the leaders of the synagogue, those kind of guys, they became jealous. They became jealous about this huge audience that the gospel was receiving. And that Greek word for jealous, the original word, also means zealous. It seems what they were zealous or jealous about was the fact that righteousness or justification was being located in Jesus, so through faith in Jesus, rather than in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. That's what they were getting passionate about. That's what they were getting worked up about. They just didn't feel right for them. They felt like, no, 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 we have to be obedient to the law. They have to become Jewish. They have to get circumcised. They have to do the, follow the dietary laws. And Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, 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 actually, righteousness is through faith in Jesus. And so the people that couldn't accept that, the Jews that couldn't accept that, got hostile, and they began to contradict what Paul and Barnabas was, were saying, and they began reviling them. And so Paul and Barnabas stood up and said boldly, In verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, the non Jews. For this is what the Lord has commanded us, quoting from Isaiah I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard that, they rejoiced and they honored the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Incredible. But the opposition hadn't finished. These Jews, who didn't like what was going on. They, they reached out to some of their connections in the city, some of the leading women, some of the men in the city. And they reached out and said, hey, we've got to get rid of these guys. They persecuted Paul and Barnabas, and they threw them out of Pisidian Antioch. And as they're outside the city, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their sandals, as if to say, everything that clings to us, we now leave here behind. And your response is on your heads. You are responsible now. You've heard the gospel, and we're going to keep preaching the gospel in other towns. And that's what they did. And the final verse in our passage says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So that's the story of our passage. Let's unpack it a bit further by looking at two lessons that we gain from this se- section. The first is this, we learn how to read the Old Testament. We learn how to read the Old Testament. Did you notice what Paul said about David in verse 22? He said about David, he said, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, I want to ask, why does he bother saying that? He skimmed over the rest of Israel's history so quickly. Why does he stop on David and spend this extra time to quote this about David? This gives us a little bit of an insight into how Paul reads the Old Testament. Because he sees David as not just being about David. He sees David as pointing forward as a figure, pointing forward to the ultimate king to come. Because David, again, he didn't fulfill that. He didn't do everything God wanted him to do. But the truer David, the greater David, Jesus... He was a man after God's own heart, and he did everything God wanted him to do. That's just a little picture, a little, little reference to help us understand how Paul is thinking. He spells it out more clearly in a letter to a Jew named Timothy. This is, he spells out how he thinks about the Old Testament. He said, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, That is the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written when he was in infancy. These Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what is the Old Testament meant to ultimately do? It's meant to prepare you for salvation. It's meant to make you wise for salvation. It helps you to see that you need a Savior, that you're guilty, but it also keeps pointing forward beyond itself to a Savior to come. It's meant to prepare you for the salvation that is found through faith in Jesus. I just want to point out verse 15 as well, how it says, from infancy you have known these scriptures. I think that's just so beautiful. A little, Even a baby in the womb, this Greek word refers to, or a baby that's nursing, was hearing these scriptures read to them and taught to them from that early. And so that's just an encouragement for the, the parents here. We can be reading the Bible with our kids from the get-go, Reading the Bible around them, acquainting them with the scriptures, it's a beautiful thing to do. One Bible scholar says, study of the scriptures give guidance, gives guidance toward the end goal of salvation. The Old Testament has an end goal, faith in Jesus. So when you think about the Old Testament or even just Israel as a nation, they're quite different. <clears throat> because Israel, when they were founded as a nation, they were always looking forward always looking forward. So if you go to Genesis 12, Abraham was the father of Israel, and he was promised by God that his family line would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so immediately from that point in the story, they're always looking forward to what God is going to do. It's a forward-looking story. And that's what we need to understand about the Old Testament. The law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible, were never meant to be the end goal. That's how the Jews that were getting worked up in our story, that's how they were treating it. They were treating it as if it was the end goal, that we wanted to stay there. But actually, it was always pointing beyond itself to the greater goal, to the greater king who would come. The Old Testament was looking forward to the coming of Jesus. So we don't read the Old Testament like Jews. So we don't just read it getting a good historical context and understanding the original meaning. But if we're reading as Christians, we're also asking questions like, does this point to Jesus in any way? This is a promise that points to Jesus. How does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection make a difference to the way we read this passage? Acts 13 helps us to read the Old Testament correctly. The Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament has an end goal, faith in Jesus. If you're wondering a bit about books for your kids still, from what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, you're like, yeah, okay, cool, this is helpful, but I'm not sure I'm confident in discerning every time I get a book for my child. Um, <clears throat> here's some, a couple of good stores that I've found really helpful. The Good Book Company and Reformers, they're two um, bookshops that you can go to um, online, and basically there's just certain stores where they're just very, very rigorous and careful about what books they accept and sell, and these are two stores that I can recommend to you. If you want to buy books for your kids or um, children's Bibles and you're just not sure you're confident to discern yourself, uh, these guys are a really good resource to use. And since it's Father's Day, can I just speak to the dads for a moment and encourage you uh, to be like Timothy's parents who encouraged him in the Scriptures, who acquainted him with the Scriptures from, since they were an early age. Wouldn't it be wonderful if on the future, at a Father's Day, Uh, Your kids will be thanking you for helping them to know Jesus and helping them to know the Scriptures. I think that would be such a wonderful thing to hear from your children. So I just want to encourage you to do that. As a staff team, we're here to support you if you need any help along the way or resources or suggestions. And why don't you just talk to your wife and work together, hey, how can we best plan rhythms into our life that will bless our children in this way? Maybe it's every night before bed, we're going to read a passage with them, or... Once every weekend on a Saturday, we're going to sing a song together, and we're going to read a passage, and we're going to pray. Whatever it might be, how can you give that gift to your children? I just think that would be such a wonderful goal uh, to aim for. In Acts 13, we learn how to read the Old Testament, and it changes the way we discern the Scriptures as well. Secondly, we get a front row seat to learn the gospel. After Paul proves that Jesus is David's promised descendant, he says this, it says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free. That word literally means justified. Justified from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is one of the most breathtaking blessings of the gospel when we really hear and receive this. To be justified means to be declared righteous or innocent because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. He's lived the life that God's people should have lived, and he's let justice fall on his own head at the cross for the life that God's people haven't lived. He's done everything to fulfill all righteousness so that through faith in him, we can be declared righteous and receive Jesus' righteousness. And this truth, it really sets you free. Uh, It's so accessible for everyone. It's not a reward to earn. You don't have to get on a religious treadmill to get to it. It's a gift you you receive. You'll notice in our passage that Paul said that this is a blessing given to everyone who believes. Everyone who opens up the empty hands of faith and puts their trust in Jesus. You receive that as a gift. This is why it says in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Before this, to get fully converted to Judaism, they would have to get circumcised and change their diets and do all sorts of things before they kind of meet the righteousness requirement. Now, it's just through faith in God's Messiah, God's King, Jesus. And disciples, and in verse 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know you are hearing the gospel when it feels too good to be true. And when you realize it's true and accept it like the disciples did, it fills you with joy like we see in this passage. Now, going back to our question earlier, we should probably try and answer that. Can a murderer who turns to Jesus be hired at a Bible college? Well, let's just be clear. In terms of God's kingdom, in terms of God's family, when they put their faith in Jesus, repent and put their faith in Jesus, they are justified. They are declared righteous. They are counted as innocent before God. There might be some wisdom issues about how that works. I don't want to get into that, but I just want to say clearly, anyone, no matter what sin they commit, can be justified through faith in Jesus. And if we want to say, no, a murderer could never become, that, we would never accept the Apostle Paul as a lecturer at a Bible college because he was a murderer, but he turned to Jesus, and we're learning from his sermon today, which is pretty incredible. One of the pictures the Bible uses to explain this This concept is the picture of a judge in a courtroom. And men, we're actually going to be hearing from a man who was in a courtroom once, and he was expecting to go and serve years in prison, and he was miraculously set free. And that man is Dan Smith. He was an Olympic swimmer, and he's going to be sharing his story with us at our men's breakfast uh, Saturday the 24th of September this month. So that's a few weekends away, so make sure you register for that. But Dan tells, at a point in the story, he tells how he found himself in court after a a life of criminal activity. And he was expecting to go away for at least two and a half years. And by some miracle, the judge suspended his sentence. Now, that's too good to be true, sort of news. That's a little bit like the gospel. But if I could just change and imagine his story a little bit differently, I think it could be an even clearer picture of the gospel. Imagine if the judge said, Dan, you are guilty. And bangs the gavel and says, I sentence you to immediate prison. And the prison guards come over and they begin putting handcuffs on his hands and preparing to take him out. And the judge gets off the bench and walks over and says, stop, stop, stop. And puts his hands out and says, put the handcuffs on me. I'm Dan's grandfather. I love him. And I want to serve the sentence on his behalf. That's a picture of what we have received for the gospel. God, as judge, does not deny our condemnation, that we are worthy of death. He doesn't deny that. But He says, You are a sinner, and you're a sinner that I love. You're a sinner I want to come and pay the penalty for. I want to serve your sentence. I want to gift you righteousness, I want to set you free. So he sent his son to do that on our behalf so that we can trade places with Jesus and find ourselves accepted and declared righteous and innocent before God. That's a picture of the gospel. This is why the gospel produces such opposite reactions. You don't get mediocre, moderate reactions. You get joy and acceptance or rejection and hostility because the gospel devastates human pride. It says, yes, you are a sinner to begin with. It tells us that we're worse than we've ever dared to admit. And we hate admitting it. We want to hide ourselves. But God says, just stop. Just stop trying to justify yourself. Just come to me. Come out into the spotlight. Come and confess your sin. Be honest. And you will be more loved and accepted than you ever dared to imagine. I will clothe you with righteousness. I will warmly welcome you. I will call you my son, my daughter. Just come. Is there something in your life that you've buried way down deep? Maybe something that brings up shame for you, something that you wish no one else would ever find out. God dealt with that great ugly thing at the cross. If you believe in Jesus, he dealt with it. Know that Jesus actually took that thing made it his own, died to pay for that guilt, to set you free from all that weight, to make you feel innocent and righteous and justified, we accept this incredible gift by confessing our sins, leaving them behind and turning to Jesus to receive what he died to give us. The problem is, sin has just so distorted our beliefs about God that we find it so hard to believe that He would just gift us righteousness, especially in the wake of failures on our behalf. Sometimes when we just commit little sins, we think, it's okay, yeah, I'll just confess my sins, all good. But when we really screw it up, we find it so hard to believe the gospel. But I love what this pastor says, and just a warning, he is very blunt. He says, to the age-old question, What shall I do to be saved? The answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty, Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. Know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, justified. Your guilt and shame have been paid for. You can let it go. You can give it to Jesus. For those who believe in him, you are justified. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us just to listen to you. Not to the voice of Satan who just wants to accuse and condemn, but to your voice. It says, I've given you my son. Accept this gift. Lord, we thank you for this incredible gift. Lord, we receive your son this morning. We receive the righteousness he gives, the freedom that he gives. Lord, we lay our burdens down at your feet. And we want to worship you and follow you because we're just so grateful and so overwhelmed with your kindness. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.